Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Today, our, our guest is the preeminent sports storyteller uh, in the world. Uh, I just an incredible guy, and I'm so excited to be talking to him today. Uh, Ross Greenberg, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Trace. Good to be with you. And uh, where are we talking to you from today? I'm in Rye, New York. I have an uh, office here in Rye. live in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, I'm out of the city after 30 years of uh, commuting. After uh, I formed my own production company in 2011, I just brought an office up here and just dabble and going in the city now and then. Before we get into uh, Bill Russell legend, I would like to get into Ross Greenberg legend. Please um, give us a little bit of, of kind of your, your backstory and, and how you came to be part of, of HBO and, and really launching HBO Sports. So I uh, grew up in Scarsdale, New York, and Frank Gifford, uh, moved into a house down the road and he had a son named Kyle and we became best friends uh, from third grade all the way through high school playing football together and we were just very tight so I'd be over at their house all the time and Frank became kind of like a second dad in a way uh, I, you know obviously I was attracted to the fact he was super famous back then and had accomplished all he had accomplished not only with the Giants but by the time I was growing up, he had gone to CBS Sports and then ABC Sports and, of course, launched Monday Night Football. Um, so I was attracted to sports television through him. And he got Kyle and I jobs. I lived right near Wingfoot Golf Club. It was in my backyard, really. And so Frank got us assignments working for ABC Sports as spotters on U.S. Opens, first the women's, then the men's at Wingfoot. And then slowly but surely, we were going up to Rochester for a tournament, the U.S. Open, and we started working through high school, a little bit dabbling in it. But then I uh, convinced Kyle in college, uh, after our third year of college, to go on the road, and Frank got us hooked up with CBS and ABC to do individual events, which included Monday Night Football, preseason games, and a variety of other shows. Uh, they did Monday Night Baseball in those days. So at that point, I just 
loved the atmosphere, loved sports television. It felt like I was going to Disneyland every time I go to a, an event. And the magic of being behind the scenes really, really took over my life. And when I graduated college, I immediately took off and started working not as a staffer, but as a production assistant for ABC Sports. And then eight months later, they hired five people as production assistants, none of which were me. And I, and they were all women, by the way, which I thought was fascinating. It sounds like 2023, but it was uh, 1978. It was actually 1977. And so I went into Greenwich Public Library and looked for a source book that would show me what other sports television outfits were out there to kind of hunt for a job. Uh, because in those days you had ABC, NBC, and CBS, and that was pretty much it. And I found this company called Home Box Office, and there was a guy who was on this cable source book page named Austin First. So I wrote a blind resume to him. He passed it on to a guy named Michael Fuchs, who was running all the programming them, who became CEO of the company five years later after I joined, four years later. But then he passed it on to a guy named Tim Brain, who was the only person in sports production at HBO in those days. I went in to meet with him. I had gotten to know Marty Glickman. That's another whole long story. So he was in the doorway as I was leaving and the two of us exchanged pleasant hellos. And I'm sure that Marty walked into Tim's office and said, hire that kid. So he hired that kid. And, uh, you know, we're talking about the boom of HBO, we're talking about 89, 80, 81, 82. Started working on Inside the NFL, which you remember, I'm rambling, but it's fascinating. No, it's all fascinating. I just, I read the, um, the book Tinderbox and it, it literally blew my mind that, you know, HBO, right? Just HBO, this, this mega brand. I think the first thing they ever aired was like a New York Rangers hockey game to like Wilkes-Barre, uh, Pennsylvania, right? Like it, it did have these like super humble beginnings and, and truly was the first subscription platform, which, you know, now is standard. Yeah. We, we talk about all the, the streamers and the SVODs, but you know, 19, what'd you say? 70, the late seventies is when it started. Yeah, I started in 78. It started in 73. The earliest sports events were Ali Frazier and, and Ali Foreman, both of which I think Don King got 35 grand from Jerry Levin at HBO at the time to air it to the you know couple thousand subscribers in Florida and in Pennsylvania, like you said, Wilkes-Barre. Right, right because, because uh, HBO was the only one to offer primetime slots. Yeah, not only prime time, but, you know, it wasn't going to impact closed circuit. In those days, people went to stadiums to watch those events. Uh, and they knew, you know, King said, I'll grab another 35 grand because it's not going to impact people going to stadiums because it's only a couple thousand subscribers. But anyway, you know, the 80s were the boom. We obviously took over the sport of boxing. Uh, we started doing documentaries. And then as time went on, I had to find different forms of programming that weren't about paying a billion dollars a year for an NFL game or an NBA season. So, you know, that's when documentaries hit hard. That's when 24-7, 
real sports and all the other forms of programming started to evolve. Right. Uh, and look, I mean, you might be too modest to mention it here, but also in this, this book, Tinderbox, it, it referred to some of the innovations that, that you and your team came up with in covering sports that are taken for granted today, but prior to you doing them had never happened, such as uh, microphones in, in the corner. So you could hear what the boxers and trainers were saying between rounds. Yeah, that was something that I hold near and dear to my heart. I, you know, one day I was just sitting in my office and wondering, well, wait a second, I don't have to worry about leagues. I can just go up to trainers and say, would you mind wearing a microphone in between rounds? And we had this guy, Bob Dixon, who was a superhuman audio person at the time. And he created uh, our ability to, to sneak in with hearing what was going on between rounds. We didn't have commercials. So I had to figure out what to do with that minute. You know, replays are one thing, but if you can get into the drama and actually be on the sidelines as if you're listening to the head football coach telling his fighter what to do, and it became some of the most dramatic events in the history of the sport. You know, Dundee screaming at Sugar Ray Leonard in the Hearns fight, you're blowing it, son. You're blowing it. You got to be quicker. Got to take it away from him as Mark Payton shoots and zooms in on a on his left eye, you know, which is almost closed. And he gets up off the stool and knocks out Tommy Hearns. I mean, come on. You can't. That's like Rocky. Right. So t- talk to me about that. Talk to me about, you know, the ph- your philosophy of storytelling, particularly coming up at a place like HBO, you know, known, known now, uh, you know, for movies and, and premium storytelling. You know, did that philosophy carry over to what you did at HBO Sports? It did. I mean, I think the philosophy of Rune Arledge at ABC really impacted me, though. Um, telling it like it is through his mouthpieces, Jim McKay and Howard Cosell and the like. You know, deep storytelling is all about a beginning, middle and end and recognizing that you can tell a unique story that will bring out the emotion of either an upset or going through adversity uh, dealing with physical or mental issues and overcoming all of it. And sports gives you that ability to kind of rise above it all. And then I was the kind of kid who would sit at home watching the Olympics and listening to McKay's voice and his poetry out of his mouth as he, you know, watched Bill Toomey in the darkness of Mexico City making the turn to win the decathlon, coming out with these beautiful words and I would get all teary-eyed. So I always told my staff at HBO, you know, our motto was make them laugh, make them cry, uh, send a tingle up their spine. Because sports can do that if you have that moment. You know, as I sat there, you know, watching the movie Miracle, which I was a part of, you know, in the rough cuts, you know, as we got toward the end of the film, I'm sitting there with a tingle up my spine and I, you know, my eyes getting all watery, uh, reliving the moment. And so I always felt as if it, if it would tug at my heartstrings, having seen it 50 times, which just happened, by the way, on Bill Russell Legend, which we'll talk about later. But, you know, then I know that whatever we're doing is working. And, uh, you know, the staff used to tease me. Um, that if they saw me crying, that they knew we had a hell of a show on our hands. 
<laughs> was that because uh, they knew what you were like at other times? <laughs> the uh, the pressure cooker of the control room to tell us about you. You see an announcer, cool, composed, collected on air, but what's going on behind the camera? What was your reputation as the producer? Well, at first, I mean, I was part of uh, the beginnings of ABC Sports in the seventies, and I, you know, I would be in the truck with people like Chet Forty. Chuck Howard, uh, you know, there were certain guys there that just thought you had to scream in order to be heard. And they, they were unbelievable magicians. I mean, I still to this day marvel at the way Chet Forty could tell a story within a game. Um, you know, you, you know, he was the kind of director that if, if someone fumbled on the next series, when that other team took the field, he would, put that other camera on that guy that had fumbled on the bench. He was the first director to kind of see stories developing before his eyes. Uh, and I always tried to carry that, you know, to our boxing program at HBO so that you would, I would always go into a fight knowing there was a subtext of three or four storylines, you know, it might be that the fighter hurt his, his wrist in a previous fight. So you got to look out for that or, you know, the relationship between trainer and boxer had a certain story to it that you wanted to kind of embellish. Um, so anyway, so that's really what sports is all about is just following a story, whether it's live documentary feature piece on real sports or a, you know, a six series, hard knocks show where you're going from beginning, middle and end to a preseason. That's really what it's all about. So when, you know, when I hear the word storyteller, I love it and I take it with great pride, but I realize that people can tell bad stories too. They can, there are people out there that can't connect the dots and don't understand that just putting together magical kind of appearances you know, shooting an interview a certain way or or having some kind of an animation or, you know, recreation, they think it's art. Well, sometimes art can be discombobulated and there's no story there. Sure. Uh, it's just, you know, there's good movies and bad movies, right? It's uh, where yeah. you're using the same language that we would use to describe a, a, a great scripted movie or TV show you know, for sports, because it is, it's, it's the same stuff that we all respond to. It's, it's stories, yeah. it's narrative. So yeah, moving along. I mean, you mentioned a, a bunch of shows right here. I mean, you have too many credits to list, but you know, some of these, you really were inventing the genre of like the sports doc you follow from 24 seven and, and hard knocks. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of those shows? You know, did they come out of turning around things so quickly in the control room? Like how are you able to one, get access and two, deliver, like just execute on the, on the pitch? Great question. So in the nineties, my daughter, I noticed was watching real world and all these follow doc reality shows. Um, I used to call them manufactured reality because a lot of times they weren't real reality, but, but in those days I could see it was catching on survivor. had just started and so we were kind of, I was on the lookout to see if there was something we could do in sports. Uh, and a guy named Marty Kallner approached me and HBO about following six rookies as they tried to make their way into the NFL. And I told Marty in that first conversation, I like it. 
sounds good. I have to call Steve Sable at NFL Films because it's the only way this can get off the ground. We have to do it as a co-production with them. Uh, we have to let them carry the ball because of Steve's 30-year relationship building within the NFL, knowing all the owners and the general managers and, and all the coaches. You know, he would be the one that would have to put his butt on the line and convince them to follow them during the preseason. So I talked to Steve. He was in within 10 seconds, but we agreed that there were so many things going on in preseason that we shouldn't just confine it to the six rookies. So we branched it out, you know, the grizzled veterans trying to make the team who were on the bubble. You know, we we really kind of, kind of made it a five-week uh, intense, fun, you know, exploration into what goes on in an NFL training camp. And so that's really, that was the start. I mean, if you look back in the history of television, that was the start of bringing sports into everyday behind the scenes looks at the NFL. By the way, having said that, you know, it's not as if Steve hadn't put mics on Vince Lombardi in the 60s in practice and he was doing bits and he did an hour show at the end of the season where he followed Lombardi the entire season. We used a lot of that footage in our Lombardi document. But so I'm not saying that that was the absolute first time anyone had been behind the scenes. It was Steve Sable that had already started that right. process. And so there we were and it exploded. I mean, we picked the perfect team coming off a of Super Bowl in the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, with characters like the late, great Tony Siragusa and Brian Billick, the coach. And, you know, it was just like Shannon Sharp. I mean, these are characters beyond characters. So it just exploded. It exploded. And, and, you know, when we saw that first cut, the rough cut, big smile on our faces. You know, and by the way, the execution was unparalleled. Uh, We threw so many resources at this. Steve used to call it the Super Bowl of their year because really the intensity of putting that show together. And by the way, we were the first to kind of put it together in six days. I was going to say, I mean, you're filming through Sunday and then it airs Tuesday night. I mean, it was crazy what we were doing. No one had ever, he called, I remember the first press conference we had and we're sitting there and the writers are kind of scratching their heads are you telling us that you're going to shoot this and then have all the material on the air within six days? And Steve goes, well, yeah, I kind of look at it as if we're building an airplane, airplane in midair. <laughs> you know, that was his description because he could always kind of catch a phrase, but right. No, I mean, it's phenomenal. Like my, my wife is not a sports fan by any means, but Hard Knocks is one of the few sports shows she will watch with me. And it's because of some of those additions you just mentioned, whether it's a grizzled vet or whoever it is, but the guys on that cut line, yeah, right? Whose futures really do the stakes, right? We talk about storytelling, the stakes, the consequences, mm-hmm. you know, we're not worried about the starting quarterback or running back. They're going to be fine. Yeah, but it's the guys who might have to go looking for another job if they don't make the final roster. I mean, that's that's compelling. And I remember the first injury where, you know, season-ending injury we dealt with on Hard Knocks, where you're seeing this guy laying on his back wondering if he's going to ever have a career again. He's built his whole life around getting to the point in the NFL, and then bang, you know, with one hit, 
it can all be over. So, it, you know, it's not an easy job. And I think we showed it through the years on that program. And then, of course, 24-7 evolved, which was a whole nother, you know, exploration into a different sport and and then subsequently different sports like the NHL and, you know, uh, the Daytona 500 with Jimmy Johnson. And then, you know, I've expanded that over the years uh, when I got out of HBO. But, um, yeah, it's been a it's been a wild ride. Yeah, hell of a run. So uh, this will be a little bit of transition to talking about uh, Bill Russell and Sam Pollard. But tell us about some of the incredible filmmakers you've worked with over the years, you know, people who you helped send them on their way, so to speak. Well, I mean, you know, Ezra Edelman was with us uh, doing great documentaries like um, Kurt Flood, the history of the African-American athlete, uh, a variety of other, and Magic and Bird, which is to this day, one of my favorites. So working with Ezra was a dream. I I think that we gave Ezra and we gave Margaret Grassi and Joe Levine and George Roy kind of a blueprint as to how to go about making these, how to tell a story, how to research footage. You know, we developed a style. When It Was a Game was probably the first film in 1990 where over a six to eight month period, really figured out how to put this thing together. I just watched Civil War by Ken Burns. And, you know, here's a guy that was taking a subject matter in 1860 and actually putting it on a visual screen on television. And he did it with a lot of sound effects over stills, because that's all he had, obviously. And he did it with a lot of written, you know, words that came out of books and and different uh, source material where you'd have actors play the roles of certain people within the Civil War. He added an art form to it. And so when we had this, when it was a game project, which was 100 hours of Major League Baseball footage from the 30s to the 60s, all in color, we then had to develop what the story was we were trying to tell. And we had to figure out how to bring this unbelievable color footage to life. So started putting fully, you know, uh, sound onto the original footage that didn't have sound on it. Found our really great score through a guy named Ferdinand J. Smith and a guy named Brian Keene to bring the kind of era to life and went out and sought out James Earl Jones and all the Roy Scheider, all these different voices to bring to the party and, you know, take great baseball literature and and kind of bring that to life through their their voices uh, to weave in the kinds of storytelling that we wanted to bring people back in a time capsule to the time periods of the 30s through the 60s and where Major League Baseball is this innocent little game. So that really was the start. And then all of a sudden I started thinking of subjects that were near and dear to my heart, like the AFL, John Madden. His agent, Sandy Montag, gave me a call one day and said, John would really like to put down a documentary on the AFL because all these guys are going to start to pass away. And we have to kind of give that story uh, what it was due. Well, meanwhile, they were asking a guy that sat in the you know upper deck at Shea Stadium watching Joe Willie Namath for nine years because my dad got season tickets. So for me, it was like a dream come true started with Lamar Hunt and ended with him, you know, winning that Super Bowl four. I also went to Super Bowl three as a 13 year old. 
down in Florida. So I, I attached myself to certain stories that were near and dear to my heart, and then others would come to me. And if I recognized that it had the ability to bring people to tears or to bring people to a tingle in their spine, boom, we were executing on it. That's the power of sports. I love Sandy Montag, by the way. He's actually our neighbor here, so we, we see him all. Oh, yeah, I know. Fantastic. I think that's a great uh, transition to Bill Russell, capturing the life of this iconic athlete and activist whose work spans such a huge period of time. I mean, that is no small feat to distill this down to uh, essentially just a two-part film. Yeah. Tell, tell me about the, the genesis of it. Um, it sounds like you've known Sam Pollard for a while. You know, tell, tell me how it came together and, and how it came to land at Netflix. So it started with a guy named Mike Richardson, who had uh, become friendly with Bill over the last five, six years. Now, I had met Bill 30 years ago uh, and actually did a documentary at HBO on Bill Russell, which people probably don't remember. Didn't go all the way with it. Uh, felt like we had left gaps of his life out only because Bill wasn't ready to tell them. Uh, you know, he was holding back in that, those days a little bit. Believe it or not, when it came to telling his story, he wasn't holding back when he was fighting for civil rights. So I had gotten to know him really well. So Mike Richardson calls my really close friend, Larry Gordon, who's like a mentor. And Larry made such small movies as um, Field of Dreams, uh, 48 Hours, Die Hard, you know, yeah. he was, he's a prolific, huge filmmaker in Hollywood and never done a docu, 86 years old. He calls me and says, look, Mike Richardson called me. We've got Bill Russell if, if we want him. Uh, but I told Mike, there's only one guy, you know, to turn to. And he said, and he said, I want you to join this. And I said, you know, I'll give you Mike's number. I said, well, I'm not doing it if you're not involved, because I always wanted to work with Larry. So the three of us got together, got on a Zoom in those days, was right in the middle of the pandemic, because we started this thing two years ago. And uh, in the middle of the pandemic, and we did a Zoom with Bill and his wife, Janine, and they were amenable to telling the life story. Bill was, you know, deteriorating at the time. I mean, he was 86 at the time. And uh, we knew the first thing we had to do was sit him down for an interview. We had not sold it at all, but we had to fire up cameras because we couldn't take any risk that we would lose him. So we did two separate interviews. Mike sat him down, Larry and I on a Zoom, and he did two two-hour interviews, one to two and a half hours, one two hours. And we got quite a bit out of him, uh, but he was in declining health. So... You know, that was the start of the shooting process. Then it was, okay, how are we going to sell this? Larry Gordon mentored a guy named Scott Stuber over 30 years. And Scott runs all the programming for Netflix. First, I approached Disney. They nicely passed. And then we went right to Stuber at Netflix. And Stuber was blown away. Huge basketball fan, but a huge understanding of the impact of Bill Russell, the man. Right. And within 10 seconds, he, he understood that this was going to be a big project. He allowed us the flexibility to tell it in as long a form as we needed to. They didn't put any kind of time pressure on us in terms of when it should come out. But more importantly, you just want it to be 
and I'll quote him, great. He was not going to accept anything but great. You know, he felt like he had set up the thoroughbred. So now we had sold, and now it was, you know, me going to Sam Pollard, who I had worked with for 30 years as well, because he started with Spike Lee, and Spike had done some stuff for me at HBO. And Sam, you know, is a genius, thinks like me, directs like me. Everything he does is top quality and a great storyteller. So we get together, we talk it through briefly, and within 10 seconds, he also wants to do it. And that's when we put our teams together. You know, I had a team of people, archive producers, you know, different people on my side, Charlie Rosenzweig, I grabbed to come on board because he's been with the NBA for 35 years and can get anyone to sit down. And if you watch this documentary, your jaw drop when you see the number of big names that we did get to that were happy to do this interview for Bill Russell. So the greatest projects in the world become projects that live their own life, that you put together a team much like Bill Russell did. You find the best at what they do in every facet, whether it's editors, shooters, writers, producers, Marty Spanninger and Ruben Atlas were our producers. And you put all these people together, you throw the egos out the door, and you work to make this documentary, in Scott Stuber's word, great. And that's all we did for two years, is try to make this thing as good as it could be and tell that story of this compelling, complicated man as well as it can be told. And you did. I mean, I, I think you just gave the perfect description when people ask me, well, what is it a producer does? Uh, I think you just described that role perfectly. You surround yourself with people, frankly, better than you to, to do the job. And, and you did on this film. I, th- I think Sam's the, the perfect choice to direct this because he brought that lens to it, right? You know, one could easily tell Bill Russell's story and focus just on the basketball because he was so incredible. I mean, yeah. 11 championships in 13 years, the first African-American coach. I mean, the accolades go on and on. But as you see in the film, that's not who he was. Basketball was the thing he did that really allowed him to mm-hmm. have a greater impact on lives and bring about real change. And I think you and Sam captured that uh, beautifully throughout the film. And just to expand a little bit further, my dad, I mean, has been a Boston Celtics fan his entire life. You know, he's a 76-year-old man from Tulsa, Oklahoma, never really spent any time in Boston, but it was all because of Bill Russell. And I mean, I have heard the stories. They're, they're on repeat <laughs> at this point, but I mean, his stories as to the Bill and Wilt rivalry, and how, you know, Wilt was the better athlete, but Bill could, you know, use his his intellect and his creativities to, you know, all right, I'm going to let Wilt have this shot. But when it comes down to the clutch, I know what he's going to do. And I know how to block it in this direction. So it goes to yeah. Koozie and Koozie throws it, you know, the the stories go on and on. And, and as soon as before I even told my dad I was interviewing you, he said, have you watched Russell yet? Have you watched Russell yet? Like literally the, the Tuesday or Wednesday it dropped. And uh, I was like, I, I will, I will, I will. It's three and a half hours, but I will. And um, it's great. So thank you for giving me and my dad something new to talk about besides like the weather and Notre Dame football. Well, uh, you know, when I think about your dad sitting there, and I've had a lot of people from Boston call and, and tell me what it meant to them 
that's what gives me chills is knowing that people like that can sit for three hours with their mouths open and learn so much about the man they idolized and hear the really deep, deep stories that were part of his life that they had no clue. But they they get a better understanding of who they worshipped and who they idolized. So many things. I, I really enjoyed the sequences. I never knew he was a painter and, and how that influenced you know, how he viewed the game of basketball. Yeah. Uh, you know, this was a beautiful uh, stroke. Yeah. Uh, and and his uh, bringing math and geometry. I mean, how he and Casey yeah. Jones literally revolutionized how defense was played in the NBA. I, I never knew any of that. Well, the, the defensive part is astounding. You know, I was thinking the other day, they didn't, they didn't count the number of blocked shots in those days. You, there wasn't a little stat at the end of the game, how many blocked shots you had. How many quadruple doubles would Bill Russell have had through his career? I mean, the guy was blocking 10 or 15 shots a game every game. So he had the number of assists. He had the number of points. He was always 18, 20 points a game. I mean, and, you know, the assists were there. It's just unbelievable. It's He was an unbelievable basketball player. I was also thinking the analogy – we always give Lawrence Taylor such great credit for changing the defensive side of the football. Russell did that. And even today, though, okay, LeBron just broke Kareem's record. Those are huge accomplishments. But we seem to give, like, Lawrence Taylor the kind of just do he deserves on the defensive side of the ball. Has Bill really ever gotten the just do that he deserves? For I think we did. Finally, in this documentary, you know, blocking shots in critical situations and the outlet pass that he invented and the fast break, which he basically invented off the defensive rebound, they had never been done before. And 11 championships, there's a reason for it. You know, Red in the documentary, if you remember, said, I, I didn't know he had those leadership skills, you know, coming out of USF after a couple of years. But the leadership skills won the 11 championships, right? I mean, that, that's what did it. And, you know, leadership today on the football field or, the, or on the court, it feels like certain guys, they become so narcissistic that they're the, quote, leader of the team. But are they really? Because there's a reason why they're not winning 11 out of 13 championships. The reason Bill won 11 is that the five guys on the court was all he cared about, not himself at all. All he wanted to do was get the ball to who he needed to get it to at the right moment, block a shot. Right. I mean, we, we talk about the stats and, and I think argue rightfully so that he deserves to be in that pantheon list of, you know, the, the goats, but it does kind of get lost to the passage of time just because there wasn't the coverage then that there is now, and thanks to your film and, and the great archival that you were able to bring to it, you know, footage of those games to see him do it is phenomenal. But at this very same time, he didn't care, right? He didn't give a shit about those stats. He let Wilt get all the points he won. Only thing that mattered to him was whether or not they won. And boy, did they. Yeah, you know, he once told me, we didn't put it in the film, but he told me on quite a few occasions, you know, I knew if Wilt was going to score 50, we were going to win the game. <laughs> he used to tell me that. I said, the first time he said it, I said, what What are you talking about? What? And he goes, yeah, I knew because that meant 
that he wasn't getting the ball to any of his teammates and we would easily win the game. I said, okay, <laughs> I get it. I get it. And uh, that's just a great mind yeah. at work. You know, and the other funny thing about the docu, there are certain quotes in there. It's not just about the quote. When Bill Bradley says he was the biggest genius in the history of basketball, you know, it's not it's not that he said he, he was a genius at the game of basketball. It was that Bill Bradley was saying he was a genius. A Rhodes Scholar, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, was saying that Bill was a genius. Yeah. Or similarly, <laughs> his arch enemy, the guy whose life he made miserable for years and years and years, Jerry West. I was just going to say, Jerry West. Yeah, to be able to sit down on camera and you know be able to pay tribute to Bill yeah. Russell despite – the pain that Bill Russell must have caused him over the years. He said, he said there was only one reason that they beat us so many times and won 11 championships. And that was Bill Russell. <laughs> you know, he's not wrong. No, he's not wrong. Jerry West saying, yeah, no, I mean the, 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 the cameos, the, the interviewees you were able to get from every generation. And I think that really helps contextualize you know, Russell's impact where of course the guys, his contemporaries know, know who he is and what he's all about, but then paying it forward to Shaq saying every big man should give him 5% of their contract or I know CP three and uh, Jason Tatum and, you know, Steph just being like, yeah, he stood up for what was right. And, you know, I think that's a message that, it, that there's a responsibility, right. That it does go forward that, that these athletes, whether they want it or not do have a platform and, you know, should they choose to use it, they can do a lot of good. Yeah. I mean, that was really a message. And I have to attribute Dan Silver from Netflix, who uh, who really encouraged us to do that. And we wanted to find players that had direct pipelines to Bill that, that he mentored over many years. So Steph and Jason Tatum and Shaq and, you know, all those guys, Magic, uh, Larry Bird, they, they all – they all had a deep connection to Bill and were around Bill. And here, you know, when you were around Bill, you got an hour's worth of a conversation. It wasn't like you could be around him and get a couple sentences. I mean, you if you had the time and he had the time, man, he would jump in full feet, both forward, and, and he'd give you 15 stories to feed off of. And, wow. you know. And that's amazing. I mean, that that alone, sorry to interrupt, that alone is amazing that the love he shared, especially given the abuse that he had to put up with for decades, right? He was, he was construed as the angry black man, right? Because he was yeah. bringing up in uncomfortable truths for a lot of people at the time. Yeah. And I think that, you know, every player that we interviewed, understood the depths of the how scary his life was as compared to theirs you know Renee Montgomery talks about we would you know if we were in that restaurant and they denied us service we were going to tweet it on the spot well Bill didn't have a, a little phone to tweet he he had to leave Kentucky and go home and convince his black teammates to do it and that's not that long ago. I mean, that is truly a generation or two. Like it is not. Yeah. And stand up and 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 go down to Medgar Evers, you know, the the belly of the beast down in Mississippi, 
uh, go to Charlie Evers uh, when he was requesting him to come down to give some clinics to kids right in the middle of 1964 in the Deep South when blacks were getting killed on a daily basis on the streets or hung, uh, he goes down there. March on Washington, which was an unbelievable event, Taylor Branch kind of laid it out, hey, that was scary to go to the March on Washington. There were a lot of people that thought riots were going to break out. So, you know, he seemed to go wherever he needed to go to to get his point across. And at the same time, I mean, what I remember about that scene is is to also have the humility yeah. to um, not speak at that because he felt he didn't earn the right. He wanted to be there to support. He wanted to be in the first row. But there are people who had been working longer and harder on this than him, and he wanted them to have their moment. You know, yeah. again, yeah. speaking to today's generation, I'm not sure a lot of people who are in the camera you know, would have the humility to do that. They would kind of no. do their selfie right here, right? It would, um, yeah. It's a different world. It's a different world. And uh, I understand that. And, I, you know, I think that as Shaq and all the others pointed out, now these players understand it. They know the history. They knew the history of Bill Russell before our documentary. And so they realize that they have a role. You know, we made that really clear. Steph Curry said it, CP3 said it, we have a role to speak up on this platform. Well, that was Bill Russell and Jim Brown, you know, in the 60s. But these players today know it, and they're not afraid to execute on it. And they have the backing of the leagues, which also helps. Right, right. but if not for Russell and, and his peers, that, that road is not paved, right? They're, they're still fighting. No. Not paved. Yeah, and thank you for for helping to bring that story to life. I, I urge everyone to to check it out. Um, I, I know my dad and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, who knew it was a father son story in, in a weird way? Yeah. But wrapping things up, what's uh, what's next for you? Is there anything that you can talk about that you're working on? Excited about? Well, we we signed up. I'm doing my first podcast, which is interesting, on a gentleman named Hobie Baker. Uh, it's not announced yet, but it just was with you. Every year, there's a uh, Hobie Baker Award given to the number one college hockey player in the country. Now, he happened to play for Princeton in 1915. But I'm not even going to tease you with the story because it's such a bizarre story and a great podcast. So, ESPN's 30 for 30 wants to do that. And then I have another documentary that we're that's brewing with Turner. I, I'll just say it's based on a story, a long 40-year story within the NBA, which is going to be a fascinating story to tell. So, And doing that with your friend Sandy Montag as well. Uh, I'll have to get some more intel from him, but that's a that's a great tease for both. And I'll certainly check out the Hobie Baker podcast when it drops. I've started doing a little uh, silly kind of sign off thing. The uh, dream dinner party. If you could invite anyone past or present to your house for dinner, who would it be? Well, in their prime, I'd like to get Bill Russell, Billy Jean King, Arthur Ashe and Muhammad Ali all together to talk about their lives. Um, now, I had the opportunity to, you know, have Billy Jean and Arthur together many occasions because I was doing Wimbledon for 20 years and we'd have production meetings every morning. So I, I'd, I'd have the two of them, but to have all four 
just waxing poetic about their life stories and, and what they went up against in their lives and, and how they, you know, became the champions that they became. That would be a dream team for me. Yeah, that's a, that's a Mount Rushmore right there of iconic athletes, not just for their sports performance, but for their life performance. Yeah. Right. Winning at life. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's probably the most important takeaway. I, my last conversation was with the filmmaker, David Charles Rodriguez, who did the Neymar series. And, and he put a big emphasis on that. He said, I, I would like to see more of our stories evolve towards people who are winning at life and not just winning the game. That's it. And that's what they did. Well, excellent. Uh, Ross, thank you so much. It is an honor and a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks, Trace. Any, um, any websites, handles that the audience should check out besides going on Netflix and watching Bill Russell? Well, RossGreenbergProductions.com is there. So if you uh, need to see what's up and what we've done and, and what we're going to do, uh, all of it's on that website. Perfect. We'll check it out. Ross, thank you, sir. Take care. Okay.